You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. I'm going to get started. I am still Jocelyn Kirby. I am still from Penn State. Um, but today I'm going to be talking about what? Something a little bit controversial, I guess, um, which is money, and especially money related to healthcare. And the second controversial part of this is actinic keratosis. So you've heard a couple of times this morning something about actinic keratosis. And if you, during the next few minutes, <clears throat> get this like sense that something's not right, if you get a flash of anger, if you are like, what is she talking about? How dare she say that? This is a good thing because I've been asked to sort of make you think in a different way about especially actinic keratosis. So, oh, so um, this came up last night. I, uh, I went to the baseball game and had a lot of fun, but I said, you know what, this is not really my preferred sport. And when I told um, Brian uh, what my sport was, he was a little bit surprised, so he wanted to, and I would love to see if you can guess um, what my preferred sport might be. So this is just a fun warm-up question since people are still coming back from the coffee break. All right, that's just because it was the outlier. Um, yes, so when I was in college, I played rugby. I will fully admit to having a freshman 15 or 40, and so I, was, I had a little bit more padding at that time, but I did play rugby. Uh, and it taught me a lot about what kind of pushing barriers um, and kind of saying like, this is not a sport that women are supposed to play necessarily, like this is not something that is typical and I kind of like that. And I've taken it into my career a little bit. Um, and so what I wanna try and do is kind of push those borders of what's comfortable and what is normal in how we treat our patients um, and hopefully make you think a little bit about why you do what you do because arguably we get very efficient at those things that we do all the time. And actinic keratosis is one of the top diagnoses for which patients see us. One of the top, like number one. You wanna say it's acne, it's not. It's not psoriasis, it's not eczema. It is actinic keratosis. And so since this is so common, we see it all the time, we get into these habits or routines, and I found myself falling into those same routines but never really questioning the basis for which I did it. So I'm gonna try and <clears throat> walk you through some of the questioning that I went through and maybe see if you question it. So this is the Philly VA. This is where I grew up, not literally, but as a dermatologist. So I had my faculty, my teachers, the people who had been doing this for as long as I had been alive at that point, and I would have them come in and they would see my patient and they'd say, yep, do some freezing, you know, here on the arm, get these things here and here. 
And, you know, I was just super enthusiastic and, you know, I'm good at being, doing what I'm told. So I took my cryo gun in there. I froze off everything that was pink and scaly. Everything. And it was only after I went into practice that I was like, what am I accomplishing? Now that I'm seeing my own patients in follow-up, like, am I accomplishing anything? Am I saving lives? Am I reducing the rate of skin cancer? And I didn't necessarily feel like I was. Now, about six years ago, um, one of the residents who I teach, he got married and his family is originally from India. So as a side story, this is how I got to thinking about efficiency and value. And it's because I went to India and I saw how people lived. And they did not have MRIs. There were families of five on Vespa scooters and I feared for their lives. And I just saw people get by with so little and I was thinking, I am so lucky I come from so much. Can I be more efficient even for the people here in the US that have so little? So I think sometimes as a dermatologist, I get used to seeing a fairly comfortable level of patient. And I see the people who have the access even to a dermatologist. But there are so many other people in our healthcare system who have the barest access to medications, to procedures, to even PCPs. And I feel a little bit of a compunction to say that it's my job to use resources wisely in the entire healthcare system. So that way there's less waste and more of it can go to everything. And so the first thing that kind of hit me was, what am I doing with all these AKs? And so before we um, kind of get into that, the other thing I noticed was with my you know, senior colleagues was they would say, okay, freeze off the precancers. And precancers is really easy to say. And it's the way that I said it for years. But I wondered, you know, is this really true? So one of the things I did was I dug into the evidence. And you've heard some of that evidence this morning about how often does an actinic keratosis turn into skin cancer? 16% is the highest end. And when we tell you that if you biopsy a squamous cell, we'll say if you biopsy 100 squamous cells, that 84% of them will be associated with an AK. What you have not measured there are all the rest of the AKs that never became squamous cells. So that 84% is a little bit of a very inflammatory statistic. And again, 16% even is the highest end. Whereas when we look at the literature, it's maybe one to six out of a thousand that will turn into a squamous cell skin cancer. But what's challenging is we don't really know which one two or six are the ones that are going to turn into squamous cell skin cancer. And so this is the challenge. But certainly it's not 100%. Nowhere in any of the statistics this morning did you hear that every single one of actinic keratoses turns into squamous cell skin cancer. So to me, that's how I interpret precancer. Like, unless I do something to intervene, this is gonna turn into cancer. And I wondered if that's what people were hearing as I walked into the room and I said, sir, you have this thing on your head, it's a precancer. Is it okay if I freeze it off? Who's gonna say no to that? It's a precancer, heck yes, I want you to freeze it off. Freeze whatever you see. Whereas I think practically and 
not paternalistically or maternalistically, however you like to look at it, I need to give them the information. I need to say, this is a spot of sun damage. There is a small chance, somewhere between one-tenth of one percent or 16 percent. I don't say that. I just pick a number. My statistic happens to be about two percent. And I say there's about a two percent chance that this could turn into skin cancer. If it's really bothering you, if it's rough, painful, itchy, I can take it off for that reason. Sometimes they ask, well, if it's not definitely going to turn into cancer, is it covered by insurance? I say, yes, yes, it is. And then that's a two-minute conversation. Admittedly, it's longer than the one second of saying, you have a precancer, but I feel better about the information that I'm giving to that patient. So this is interesting that the Skin Cancer Foundation, a very prominent um, kind of website or source of information for our patients, says that actinic keratosis are the most common precancer. And when we surveyed patients, I wanted to know, when I frame information to you, meaning if I tell you that you have a 1% risk of cancer or a 99% chance that it's not going to turn into skin cancer, how do you perceive that? Because it's interesting. If I walk into a store and I go to buy a pair of shoes, the price on the shoes says that they are 30% off. The sign does not say these shoes are still 70% of what they would usually cost. So the way that we frame information to people, they make decisions differently. So it's not surprisingly the same proportion of people or the same number of people who would say, if you tell me that this has a 1% risk of turning into cancer, let's say 50% of people say that they want to have it removed. If I frame it the other way and say 99% of these will not turn into skin cancer, an even lower number of people says that they want it treated. So the important point is the way that you frame a percentage influences how people make a decision. And so rather, I acknowledge sometimes that if I choose a certain way to say something, I'm sort of hurting someone towards a decision. So I very purposefully will say for many things, if you take this isotretinoin, there's a 25% chance that you might need a second course. But that means there's a 75% chance that you won't. Because I know that people are going to perceive those things in different ways. And so this is research that's out there showing that if I frame actinic keratosis as a precancer, 92% of people say they would definitely want it treated. If I frame it as actinic keratosis or a spot of sun damage, 99% of these might not turn into skin cancer, 58% definitely want it treated. So just know that the way you say things, whether it's related to actinic keratosis or anything else, really does matter to patients and how they process that information. So part of kind of my eureka moment with actinic keratosis was certainly about the cost, as I mentioned, having these experiences and doing some traveling, and I was digging into what is the behavior and what is the cost. So it was just a report that came out from the AAD showing that we spent $1.7 billion in one year on actinic damage. Some of that was related to actinic keratosis, and a part of it was also sunburns. They didn't really break it apart. Um, but actinic keratosis 
are really common, as I mentioned. And if you took that $1.7 billion, that's actually three times the budget of the Children's Health Care Insurance Program for the state of Washington. So in one year, kind of thinking about how we spend our money and doing it in a more efficient way, again, means more money potentially for other things. So if I know something about how risky or how dangerous actinic keratoses are, maybe I can say this is, I want to put maybe different resources towards the treatment of this condition. So AK behavior, again, is not that every single one is turning into cancer. I gave you this number of one out of six out of a thousand, which is certainly less than the 2% that I quote to my patients. But it's also important to realize that AKs are not all alike on every patient. On one person, one AK probably has a different risk than others, and I'll show you a picture of this in a second. But certainly the risk is probably different for people who are immunosuppressed. So I might be more aggressive and you know, remove more actinic keratoses than somebody who's had a transplant, but I don't know that I need to apply the same methods to every single patient. Do I need to obliterate every actinic keratosis on a 40-year-old or an 80-year-old? What is the goal of what I'm trying to achieve for that patient? And this gets talked about a lot, this last point of AKs having mutations in P63, a certain gene, that is a very similar mutation found in SCCs. But that might be true, but we're not seeing clinically that every AK turns into SCC. So just because you might see similarities at a gene level does not mean that that mutation is going to cause the same behavior. And so a lot of studies have been done looking at these rates of transformation and at treatment of actinic keratoses. But arguably the thing that we're all trying to do by treating AKs is prevent cancer. And that is the single thing that even in a huge Cochrane systematic review, nobody's been able to prove that what we do is changing the rates of squamous cell skin cancer at a large population level, which is exactly where we're treating these at a very large $1.7 billion level. So actinic keratosis, the one on the left, this gentleman who has very pink, fine AKs, what's the rate of the transformation for these compared to the bigger, thicker, broader spot on the right? And so the person with the lesions on the right might be the one where you say, I'm pretty worried about this one. I'd really like to make sure I get that one off. And so for a gentleman at similar age, I'm kind of picking and choosing, <clears throat> excuse me, who I'm maybe treating, but also which lesions I'm treating. And so cryotherapy is the thing that we do most often. We do this in about 40 to 50% of the visits that we have for actinic keratoses. The cost is highly variable. And so when we look at patients of a similar age, gender, and history of non-melanoma skin cancer, I'll show you a picture in a second of the amount of cost that's different for the people at the highest spend versus the lowest. And we're spending twice as much for some people compared to others. <clears throat> now maybe cryo is so useful because we know it's getting done. We're doing it right then at the appointment but it's also not the thing that's most effective for every AK. And so topicals are also useful. But what we're also looking at here outside of the clinical trials 
because that's efficacy. What we really want to know is everyday, day-to-day -day use, which is very different because in a clinical trial, people have scheduled visits. What we don't have a lot of data on is what's called clinical effectiveness, which is if you take people out of a clinical trial and they have their regular lives and all the stuff that they can't do and the visits that they're not getting paid to come to, what's the real outcome with these medications? And that's what we really need. So a lot of what I spend time thinking about is value in healthcare. So this is the idea of what kind of outcome can I get for the least amount of money? And so the bias I didn't give you at the beginning is I was raised by a coupon clipper. So my mom, <laughs> I grew up during the recession in the 90s, and we just got really good at doing what we still really needed to do, but with less money. And so I, that really still comes to me. That's my default as a person is I try and do the most I can with the least amount of money, whether it's my money or my patient's money or healthcare's money. And the challenge is that when it comes to actinic keratosis and looking at value, we really don't have any. All the best research comes out of Europe, but the healthcare systems of how medications are used and prescribed is different in Europe. The dollars and the amount of money that a medication costs in Europe is very different than it is here in the US. And so this is not really something that we can borrow or translate very effectively. But even when you do look at the results for these cost effectiveness studies, which is the type of study that says, what's the effect of your drug compared to either a placebo or another drug? And what was the amount of cost that went into getting that outcome? The results are highly mixed. Some studies favor inginol mebutate, others 5-fluorouracil, others PDT. There is not a consistency among all of these studies. So it leaves us scratching our heads just a little bit when it comes to how do we best treat AKs in a cost-effective way. This is a little bit of the data that I wanted to share with you because I feel like it's a little bit practical and it made me think a little bit. This is another large systematic review that compared a number of different treatments for fluorur or sorry, for AKs. And what they found was the best drug for complete clearance was the fluorouracil 5% cream. So what you can see here is the overall percent of people who had complete clearance on any site, that's the top row, or for the head, which is the second row, or for other body sites, which is the last row. And I think what's important to see here is cryo really had some of the lowest rates. Um, and as was mentioned earlier, we don't have um, really PDT with MAL. Uh, we're really using uh, ALA for our PDT. Um, so I think that this is really important uh, to take a look at. And what's also really striking is uh, diclofenac with hyaluronic acid was one of the things that was included. I've never had good luck with this, yet it seems like in these clinical trials that were looked at, people did pretty well. So this is really a juxtaposition to everything that I've experienced as a clinician. So our research is a little bit hard to both interpret and apply sometimes but 5-fluorouracil, for better or worse, is kind of my go-to for my area. So outcomes was just on the last slide. Cost is on this side. So this was some research looking at the variation in cost for anybody who had actinic keratoses. The people on the far right had the highest cost, so that pale bar. Their cost of treating AKs was two times higher 
than the people on the far right with the lowest quintile. And there is this variation that was not due to somebody being older, somebody being male, because they've been shown to have more AKs, and it wasn't due to them having, say, non-melanoma skin cancer in the past, which we felt like was already a sign that somebody's had some significant sun damage. So why is this 200% spend higher? Well, one thing that was kind of interesting, we wondered what if access to care and kind of being in a rural area is part of this? Rural areas had lower variability. And it might have been that just access to a provider was a challenge, so you kind of got there, and your visit and your options were just a little bit lower compared to an urban setting where access was better. You could get in potentially more frequently, so more office visits means more cost. Having access to PDT might be a little bit better in these areas. And also kind of patient requests might be very different between these two populations of people. Um, the highest variation in any type of treatment, regardless of your area, was how much we use cryotherapy. And so this idea of variation and what causes it is interesting has gotten uh, talked a lot about outside of dermatology. Atul Gawande is a well-known writer and a doctor who's talked about the variation and care for uh, one of his big examples was heart attacks and just the very high spend in small areas of Texas compared to New York State. And people weren't getting better care where you spent more money. And so what drives this variation that isn't adding value? So the idea of questioning, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? Is it leading to better value is something that I'm very um, curious about. And so at least for heart attacks, there's great guidelines. And what we don't really have in dermatology are great guidelines for actinic keratosis. So uh, this is Dilbert, uh, who I always really love. He's got a lot of fun quips about how to get through meetings. Um, and so, yeah, if you go and read some of the actinic keratosis guidelines, they are not either practical, actionable, or based on solid evidence. And this is something that I feel like I might change my practice if there was a useful guideline. Looking at the guideline quality, Australia does probably the best job in having an actionable, science-based uh, guideline if you want to take a look at it. It was based on a systematic review with the evidence for ratings, and it was one of the few guidelines that said the observation of actinic keratosis, along with appropriate education of patients, is an acceptable way to manage actinic keratosis. So I try to be kind of thoughtful about the words I choose here, which is it's not treatment, it's management. I need to give people information, and when we choose together that patient and I to treat something, then I'm choosing my cryo or my topical or even a shave biopsy to rule out squamous cell. So defense is best offense. This is what I was always told as I was playing rugby right before my coach said, all right, Shaka, go stand on the sidelines. I'll put you in later. All right. So um, what's important to know about actinic keratosis is defense probably still is our best offense. So you've heard a couple times already, and I'm going to repeat because this is important. Vitamin B, nicotinamide, niacinamide, there is very good data to support the use of this. I wish I could put it in the water. I don't sell things in my office, but I was go if I was going to, I would sell nicotinamide in my office for a couple reasons. 
I think that it's low risk, I think it's useful, and I think it's really confusing for our patients to be able to find it, and I'll talk about that in a second. So vitamin B, not T. So we joke sometimes in our office about how often we hand out tretinoin. We call it vitamin T. And there was a hope in the several years preceding that it might actually show that it's chemopreventative, maybe reduces isquamous cell skin cancer and treats um, actinic keratoses. It's not really that great. So I've totally cut it from my practice for that reason. Now, if you're using it for solar lentigines or just kind of, you know, fine lines and wrinkling, great but it's not necessarily going to make a big dent in AKs. And sunscreen, of course, but not for the only reasons. I'm going to give you one little pearl about that. So vitamin D, no, it's not niacin. And what's important to notice is that when you Google this, when your patients Google this, it's going to be confusing. This bottle says vitamin B3, but also says niacin. Don't let them get it, because I don't know what's in that bottle. It needs to be nicotinamide or niacinamide, the name on the bottle, along with vitamin B3. And the research that was done, non-melanoma skin cancers is really what got the big press. Uh, it showed a 25% reduction in all types of non-melanoma skin cancer. It's about 20% for basal cells and 30% for squamous cells at a dose of 500 milligrams twice a day. But what I didn't realize until I dug, dug into that paper a little more is this group had already done great research on actinic keratoses. And they showed that when people took the same vitamin, that they had fewer actinic keratoses. So whether you want to call this prevention or treatment, I don't care, but it reduces the number of actinic keratoses that people had, 30 to 35%. I just recommend twice a day because for a lot of my patients, I am trying to treat both the non-melanoma skin cancer as well as AKs. And I write this down for people. I write down all three of the names and I tell them, go to your pharmacist, hand it to them. If they don't have it on the shelf, have them order it for you. One of my patients said that the pharmacist went to do this. He searched nicotinamide and the price came up as like $200. Then the pharmacist was nice enough to say, well, that sounds really kind of pricey. Let me search niacinamide. It came up as $4. So I tell people, search for both of these because prices really can vary. But most of the time, a treatment of twice a day costs about 11 cents, 11 cents a day. So sunscreen. Um, sunscreen really does help us as dermatologists a lot. Um, this, I live near Hershey Park, and this is my reality every time I go there. Um, but sunscreen, interestingly, this was a study that was done uh, that looked at how SPF is used to both prevent and treat actinic keratoses. And what's really nice to see is that when people use SPF, they had 25% fewer AKs after seven months of the study. What's always really striking is what happens in that placebo group. The placebo group had 18% fewer AKs after seven months. So this could be due to two reasons. One is, well, maybe they're just really well moisturized. Well, three reasons. Two is maybe it really works. And the third one is the problem in all of these studies, we stink at counting AKs. Like, it's just really hard to call the same thing an AK as you did before or to have a real strong feeling sometimes about what an AK is. So whenever you're reading a study about AKs, just know that counting them is actually pretty tough. 
But my take-home point with this is if people are in that kind of setting of not necessarily wanting to freeze off everything, I say, you know what, use sunscreen, just use a moisturizer. You may find that you have fewer actinic keratoses, and we're going to keep watching these. If one of them changes, then we'll talk about what we can do to treat that. So just in review, what I've tried hopefully to have you think about is something that's really challenging. Because if you were like me, you grew up learning that AKs were precancer and they need to be eradicated from the earth. But I'm not convinced that there's some evidence that they are not truly precancer, but that word gets used a lot. And there's evidence to show that the way that patients kind of think about it is yeah, they're going to choose to eradicate every single one from the earth if we say it that way. Um, and the idea that money doesn't grow on trees, I heard that a lot as a kid. Um, and in healthcare, we're finding that if we don't find ways to save money for our patients, higher deductibles, kind of uninsured health plans that are not that great, this is a pinch that everybody's feeling. Um, and so to find the lesions that really are bothersome, um, and to look for better evidence as we go forward is going to be something I think that's really exciting. So if you're, again, uncomfortable, if you want to um, harass me, I will be in the uh, mingle zone, and I would love to engage any of you in any questions or conversation. So thanks so much. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.